is your mission in life? <clears throat> How would you describe why you are here? Stephen Covey, American educator, author, businessman, and writer of The Seven Habits of, the, of Highly Effective People, he encourages people to live with purpose, and he encourages people to do that by clarifying their own personal mission statements in order to focus their lives. Uh, and the way he does that, he helps people to surface uh, that mission statement by asking what kind of person do you want to be? Uh, what kind of contribution do you want to make? What is the legacy that you would like to leave? And he says that such mission statements will help people to focus their lives instead of living disoriented and distracted lives. So here's some mission statements that people have written. My mission is to give. Forgiving is what I do best, and I can learn to do better. Or here's one. I want to experience life's passions with the newness of a child's love the sweetness and joy of young love, and the respect and reverence of mature love. All right, here's one. Live, love, laugh, leave a legacy. <laughs> and here's one. I want to be the kind of person my dog already thinks I am. <laughs> so how would you describe your mission in this world? But the next question is just as important. What are you willing to do to make that mission real in your life? Are you willing to die for it? Martin Luther King said in a speech in Detroit, speaking about making the American dream a reality, he was explaining the value and the cost of nonviolent resistance for the cause of civil rights. He said, if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. And uh, in explaining this in his speech, he said, you see, this method, this method of nonviolent resistance, has a way of disarming the opponent. It exposes his moral defenses. If he doesn't beat you, wonderful. If he beats you, you develop the quiet courage of accepting blows without retaliating. If he puts you in jail, you go to jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. And even if he tries to kill you, you'll develop the inner conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. So what is your mission, and are you willing to die for it? If you are not willing to die for it, then I submit to you that your mission is too small and too safe. And you might say, well, I like small and safe. <laughs> and I, I'm often tempted to want small and safe as well. But I'm glad that you're here and are willing to be exposed to a mission that is so dear to Jesus, so precious to Jesus, so eternally true that it was worth dying for. It was worth his life, and it was worth his disciples' lives as well. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's all about Jesus as the promised king who has come to usher in the kingdom of God to convince both Jews and Gentiles that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and to strengthen believers 
to be the radical community of the king in their calling to make disciples of all nations in the face of opposition. And so this is what we've been unpacking, and today we're going to un unpack Jesus' call to his mission, starting with Matthew 9, verse 35. The, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's the word of the Lord. So Jesus calls his disciples to join him in his mission of the kingdom. And we see here the authority of the mission, the heart of the mission, and the movements for the mission. The authority, he calls the twelve, and he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and affliction. Now before Jesus calls and tells his disciples uh, to move forward in this mission, there's a problem. Uh, there is a hard reality, a challenge in this missional call. And he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Someone said that the kingdom of God is like a football game. There's 22 players desperately in need of rest and 70,000 fans desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> and here Jesus, he doesn't go into detail why this is the case, why the workers are few, but other passages seem to indicate that people did not feel compelled to follow Jesus. They had competing interests. Some uh, were more concerned about personal comfort and security. In Matthew 8, a man comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus called him on the carpet. He says, 
Foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The mission gets subordinated to other interests. Jesus also talked in Matthew 24 about the end times, and he said because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most would grow cold, that people will become callous to the pain and the needs of others. And then there is just the plain fear of painful consequences, of missional engagement that we heard from this passage. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Pliable was a fellow that was following Christian, the key character of the story. And uh, they fell into the slough, slough of despondency, the slough of despondency, whatever the... And, he, and Pliable cries out. He says, is this the happiness you have told me about all of the while? And he leaves Christians to struggle alone. And so that is often the case of many as they get further into the mission. Jesus came in mission, and Jesus calls others to in mission with him. Tim Keller uh, talks about the gospel as a message of faith, to be communicated publicly and to urge everyone to believe it. And uh, so Jesus gives authority to his apostles, to his disciples, to preach and persuade people of the truth, to cast out demons, to heal people's souls of the things that were enslaving them, and to heal, to work to mend the fabric of the world, socially, economically, to reweave the fabric, restore the fabric of the world. And Jesus gives authority to his disciples to do this. Now, some would say, well, he did that with the 12, so that's not really my role. But Jesus, we find in Luke chapter 10, he sends the 72 out, two by two. And so this was a call for all, all believers, all disciples, uh, to be those who are sent out. To be a disciple uh, means to go radically in relationship with Christ, but it also means being sent radically out. And so just as Abraham was uh, brought in uh, to the covenant with God, and, and uh, we find in Genesis 12, uh, God says, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, and go to the place that I will show you. And so he calls him to himself, God calls him to himself, and then he sends him forth, and he did the same thing with Moses. He calls Moses to himself and he says, I am going to send you. And so we find that Jesus calls us as his disciples into intimacy and, uh, and to blessing, but he also sends us out to live radically for others. Uh, before I met you, you were your own savior. You were absorbed in your own things, but now I have provided for your shame. I have given you my beauty. I have loved you. You no longer have excuses to be absorbed in your little issues. I'm sending you out. I'm sending you into the adventure of my story into an eternal kingdom. And so you and I are God's workmanship, and the scriptures tell us that he has created us in Christ Jesus to do good deeds, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. We need to discover what are those deeds. Uh, you have been shaped to be an instrument of healing. Uh, you have a unique spiritual DNA. You are specially gifted, and you are the only ones who has hands that certain people uh, can hold. Demons only you can cast out. You have the ability to touch people in lives that no one else can. 
And so we're called to this mission. What is the gospel? It is a gospel, as uh, again, Tim Keller says, that a gospel was news of an objective history-changing event that changes everyone's situation, and everyone needs to respond to it. Uh, there's a historical document about the gospel according to Caesar Augustus. And uh, it was a declaration that he had ascended the throne. And that this, this news, this major history-changing event was something that affected everybody. He became the emperor, and everyone had to deal with that. And we find uh, the situation in 490 A.D., the Battle of Marathon. Uh, the Persians were invading Greece, and the Athenian army went out to the plains of Marathon to battle the Persians, and everyone expected that the Persians would win. But unbelievably, the Greeks won, and the Athenians won, and they defeated Persia. But they knew that they needed to communicate the, this good news, this gospel news. Uh, and so someone needed to go back to the people, or there would be looting, and there would be plundering, and people would be trampling each other to get out of the town. And so they sent this single runner back, and this single runner ran all the way back from Marathon to Athens, about 22 miles, and ran into the city. And all he could do was to cry, Rejoice! We've triumphed! And then he fell dead from the run. When Jesus calls his disciples, and he calls us to go proclaim the gospel to every creature, it is profound news. It is earth-shaking news. It is history-changing event. This Jesus is the one, not just uh, a prophet with good advice, a teacher with good advice, but Jesus is the one who has come, the Son of God, the very God-man. And everyone has to deal with with him. You either respond or history is going to leave you in the wake. You must respond to this good news, this gospel. Now, you don't force people to convert. It's not this spiritual good news gospel. is not something that is forced by physical coercion. It is a spiritual force of compassion. And we see this in the next part of the heart of the mission. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think that one of the reoccurring questions about God and the God of the scriptures is, does he really care? Does he really care and understand the suffering of people in the world? Well, we find in this passage that Jesus is moved to compassion. He, is, he was moved with compassion on them. His bowels yearned for them. He was touched with the feelings of their infirmities. And that's what this word compassion means. His inward parts were moved. Uh, John Gill said that when he saw the multitudes, he, had, he was moved with compassion. His bowels yearned for them. He was touched with a feeling of their infirmities. He saw that they were fatigued and tired, and his heart went out to them. They were burdened uh, as, and weary from the traditions and the legalism and the doctrines of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were scattered around 
and thrown and tossed about, and they were divided into different sects, and they were sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' heart goes out to this crowd of these people. His heart is being drawn, and he's filled with pity for these poor people. Uh, yesterday, Kim Suter gave a wonderful seminar on navigating our emotions. And in that, she talks about God being one who has emotions. Now, of course, his emotions are pure, but he delights, and he delights in justice. He delights in people. He rejoices in people. He also experiences anger and wrath, uh, but he also experiences compassion. You know, his heart is moved. And so many times we might wonder if God really feels what my situation is and the suffering that I'm going through. And I, I can think about uh, this week we had a fire in Penn Lucy, a house uh, burned on 41st Street, and, and several families were, they lost all of their things. And, and, a, and a prayer went out in the prayer. I'll never forget the line. It says that the, the daughter in that household was distraught because the only picture of her father was burned up in that house fire. And he just kind of just felt the agony in, of that loss. Uh, I think about the six children that uh, were lost in the house fire in, uh, in Bel Air, in uh, the uh, East Baltimore. Uh, and just how do you even like enter into that? Yesterday there was a a student, uh, I understand Jeff O'Connor's uh, school, that a 14-year-old that was riding his bike and was struck by a car and died. Uh, when you are faced with unimaginable losses, is there a God who understands and who feels and responds? Well, what we see in the scriptures, what we see here in this passage, is that we have such a God. We have such a compassionate God who is moved to the very depths with the suffering of people. Uh, and you know, he calls his disciples to be an extension or an expression of that. Um, we find in Exodus, he says, I have, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned for their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. And soon after that, he sends Moses to go. And so we, we see that God experiences the distress of people's situation, as it says in Isaiah 63, and all the distress. He too was distressed. And we see in Hebrews 4 how we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way. And so we see a God who deeply is moved by the suffering of people. Uh, and so if you're a single, peop single person crying out for a mate, God enters into that. He knows your heart. Uh, maybe you're in a marriage that you feel like has been made in hell. Well, God knows you're suffering too. Or maybe you're a parent crying out for your wayward child. God knows that. Or maybe you're a child who yearns for a father's love. Or maybe you're experiencing chronic illness or unemployment or the death of a loved one. You need to know this, is that the God of the scriptures, Jesus, is moved to the very depths for your suffering. And he caused his disciples to join him. 
in showing that compassion to be engaged with the affliction of the poor. Bono, the uh, leader of the U2 rock group, uh, spoke about the Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, where God comes to restore all things, to forgive all debts, to make everything right, and to bless the poor. And he says, God has a special place for the poor. In fact, the poor are where God lives. God is in the is with the vulnerable and the poor. This is not a Republican idea. This is not a Democratic idea. It's not, with all due respect, an American idea. He said, he said, stop asking God to bless what you're doing. Get involved in what God is doing because he's already blessed it. Well, God, as, as Bono said, is with the poor. And he says, that, I believe, is what God is doing, and that's what he's calling us to do. He said, God is in the slums in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is in the silence of a mother who has infected her child with a virus that will end both their lives. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of war. God is in the debris of wasted opportunity and lives, and God is with us if we're with him. I think he's captured a lot of God's heart and place for the poor. I uh, was in St. Louis this week, uh, at his conference on reconciliation and justice, and Barry Henning, the pastor of New City Fellowship, uh, as he planted this church back, I guess it's been about uh, 15 plus years ago, he, he said the very first thing that they did in terms of outreach ministry was to find the widows in their city, uh, to find the widows in their town. And uh, he said they, the widows are the ones that are networked and are really the key to unlocking the, the ministry of the city. And he you know, started a widow's ministry, and it really was a connection point uh, for, the, for that church. You need to recognize that while we're called to enter into the lives of those in distress and to be a means of grace, we do not have the heart that Jesus has. Our compassion and our ability to feel and enter in is really limited. We're called to do the best that we can, but our job is to direct people to the one who has that heart, to direct people to this Jesus who is the Savior. We're not the saviors. We can't save people, but we can direct people to this Savior. But finally, we see the movements of the mission the movements of the mission. And uh, we don't have time to go into a lot of the details, but just quickly, there's a gospel order uh, that he sends the 12 out, telling them, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go first to the house of Israel. But what's that about? It seems somewhat narrow. But Jesus has a priority in the order of the gospel. And the order is that he goes first to the covenant people of God, to Abraham's offspring. Uh, but Abraham's offspring, as we knew from Genesis 12, were given the call that they would be blessed, that they might bless the whole world. And so we find even in this passage later on in verse 17 and 18, where uh, disciples would be dragged before the governors and kings for Christ's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were part of Christ's clear movement of the, of the kingdom. But there is a gospel order. I want to also say that this is a statement of tremendous grace uh, because 
historically, the Israelites just kept rejecting the prophets and kept rejecting Jesus. But even in this, it's a, it's, it's a sign of the forbearance and the patience of our God. He will go to the uttermost extremes to make sure people hear and understand the good news. And so that should be an encouragement. But we see a, a whole gospel. He, they teach and preach, they're proclaiming the gospel, healing every diseases. Uh, we find in uh, verse 7 or verse 35 uh, this phrase that, that he's preaching, teaching, healing uh, every disease and every affliction. So what we see is that this gospel is whole. It is, it is a gospel in powerful words that's with powerful deeds. You cannot disconnect either one of those. We see gospel provision where uh, he sends them out, not with a lot of accumulation that they're going to be taken care of in the course of their mission. And, uh, you know, we're sitting in a sanctuary right now, and it's really a, a sign of that, of how God provides for his people in the course of their mission. Uh, we were just a group of 30 or 40 people, our less sitting here, Jim. Uh, we were meeting in our living room. We outgrew the living room on Greenmount Avenue. We went to the backyard while weather was permitting. We used to have worship services in a backyard in Greenmount Avenue, and we moved eight times in two, in two years. Sometimes we didn't know where we were going to be for the next, uh, the next worship service, and we fasted and prayed. Ultimately, God took this very small group of like 30 or 40 underemployed, unemployed, crazy people and open this door up, and we've been here since 1983. God is a provider in his mission. He knows what he is about. We see gospel peace, whatever town or village you're in, uh, there's a person of hospitality, a person of peace, and, and God has people. He has people. He told Paul when he was distressed in Corinth, a stop, keep on preaching, do not stop, for I have many people in this city. And so there's people of peace who want to be part of this mission. But the, what I want to just talk a little bit with you is gospel rejection. And the reason I want to talk a little bit more about that is because about 60% of this passage in, in Matthew chapter 2, 25 verses, is about Jesus' teaching and warning about the persecution on disciples. And I find that to be a, quite a weighty thing. And if you would take the time and just read through this whole passage we didn't have time today, you would feel the weight of what it means to bring the gospel. It is a dangerous gospel. It is a gospel that is not received by many. Um, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. They'll hand you over to the councils and flog you. Um, they will arrest you. Brother will betray brother and father his child, and children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. I, he says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I mean, this is rather uh, stark words that Jesus gives about the nature of this mission. Uh, when I read this, it was you know, very sobering. And I think if anyone reads this section, these 25 verses on the persecution of believers in the gospel mission, it is a sobering thing. You, know? you say, well, I kind of like the multiplication of the fish. And I like the healings, and I like the demon exercising, and I like the large cloud, the crowds cheering. 
and I really like the wine at the party, turning the water into wine. He says, but this, you know, this persecution stuff, this is, this is rather sobering stuff. Um, they're heavy. It's heavy words. Uh, and by the way, you know, the, Christ, the persecution of Christians in the world is uh, increasing. Uh, John Allen wrote this book, uh, The Global War on Christians. And uh, he said that the world is witnessing the rise of an entire new generation of Christian martyrs. The carnage is occurring on such a vast scale that it represents not only the most dramatic Christian story of our time, but arguably the premier human rights challenge of this era as well. Uh, Rupert uh, Short wrote in a recent book, Christianophobia, a faith under attack, and he catalogs violent uh, violent targeting of Christians from Nigeria to the Far East. And uh, he talks about in India, which uh, has risen in its, in its uh, rank of, of a persecuted uh, country. He says an average of 40 incidents were reported per month, including pastors beaten, churches burned, Christians harassed. Uh, 64 million Christians are in India, but approximately 39 million experience direct persecution. And so Christians are facing harassment and persecution. 151 countries, apparently, worldwide, uh, Pew Research indicates. But Muslims are also experiencing persecution and harassment in 131 countries. If Christians are persecuted in many parts of the world, so are Muslims, Hindus, atheists, Buddhists, and Jews. Here's the deal. There's an enemy, and this enemy hates human beings. <laughs> he hates image bearers of God, and his ultimate objective is to destroy them, and he really hates the Christians. <laughs> so what, how do we live in the midst of these sobering realities? If you've just jumped into exploring Christianity, this gospel mission and calling can feel rather daunting and overwhelming. If you've been a Christian for a long time, this gospel mission and calling can feel rather daunting and overwhelming. <laughs> Uh, you know, we do premarital counseling. We do premarital counseling here. If a person wants to get married, we usually try to encourage like six sessions. So we take couples through. Marriage is a wonderful gift, but it's about two sinners who are coming together for a lifetime of marriage. And there's a lot of, a lot of stuff to work through. And so you need to take the time to kind of warn people and to unpack a lot of those things. Well, you know, Jesus spends a lot of time unpacking the wonderful gospel message, but he also tells them the challenges in that. And so he spends a lot of time preparing his disciples for the realities of what this mission uh, will involve. But we need to also recognize that everyone will give their lives to something. You will all deny yourselves for something, for someone. You will all suffer. And the question is, what will you suffer for? You will all die. <laughs> or what will you give your life for? What will you live for? And I submit to you the only person that's worthy of your life and of your affections and your sufferings and persecution is this beautiful, wonderful, eternal Savior who has come to redeem you and the world. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness 
or care to live until I chose to die for these two discoveries I'm beholden to Jesus. And so, um, you know, Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, said this. He says, God isn't looking for people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. And so you don't need to understand everything. All you need to do is keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, just to follow Jesus, and he will carry you. Yes, he'll carry you to wonderful glories, but he'll also be with you in the suffering and the persecution that he says will come. And so if you're wondering if you can follow this Jesus, if you can trust this Jesus, and like you listen to this passage and you say, I'm not sure yet, you know, one of the things, this passage is about two years into Jesus' movement of discipleship. Uh, the disciples had spent a lot of time capturing the vision of what Jesus was doing and seeing the works of what Jesus was doing. They were able to enter into the wonders of what Jesus was doing. And so by the time that he gives them this calling to mission, they were all in. They were ready to do this. Um, and so you might be here, and you may need to capture a bigger picture of what, who this Jesus is and what this mission is about. Um, Anton, Antoine uh, de Saint-Exupéry, a French writer and aviator. I think I got that. It was better this time than the last service. <laughs> he, he said this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them to task and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So if you want men to go in and to the woods and cut down trees to build a ship, don't tell them to go into the woods and cut down trees to build a ship, but tell them the stories about the sea. And they will go in and they will cut down trees and they will build a ship. The Gospel of Matthew presents many stories of this humongous sea that is designed to reveal the greatness of Jesus, this king, this kingdom, in order to captivate and to compel readers and listeners to want to know and to follow him. Stay in the journey. Get a big picture. Be captivated by this great king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are here in this gospel story that you uh, revealed the calling to mission and the heart of the mission and the, gave the authority for that mission. Lord, help us to live as your people in the middle of that. Lord, don't let us uh, subordinate it to anything else in this world that is just passing away. Uh, give us strength in the midst of our own sufferings. God, help us to uh, hear and sense your heartbeat and your compassion. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.